All right, well, welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering by St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And I want to start by saying thank you to Holly Hudley for the last 15 months? About that. Four, 13 at this, 13 and a half. And not that I'm counting, but yeah. And uh, thanks to Olivia Watson and to William Budge, who are the sole people. And William just walked out to help do uh, the live in-person wor outside worship service at St. Paul's. Um, St. Paul's is going to switch to in-person services the end of this month. May 23rd, is that I the first day? I think that's date? right, on Pentecost Sunday. That's right around the corner, really. Mm -hmm. And we, in Ordinary Life, are going to go to in-person on June the 6th. But that does not mean we won't still live stream. That's we, a very important yeah. point to make. We have been live streaming pre-pandemic. We will continue live streaming. What we really want to say is that it, your safety is priority and your feelings of comfort are priority and both live stream and minimal audience in person will be available. You'll get all the details as to how to do that in the coming weeks. So I went back and checked the analytics from a Sunday in April when we had a really big, according to the analytics, number of people Those watching. Those are confusing, but mm -hmm. yeah. They are confusing. Mm -hmm. We can discuss that later, though. <laughs> and yeah. uh, most of the people who watch Ordinary Life are from Texas. That population stretches on that particular day from San Antonio to Beaumont. And then we had people from 17 other states watching, from yeah. people from England, France, Scotland. Um, Singapore, am yeah. I correct? Sometimes Australia. Anyways, it's kind of fun to go see where people are logging in from. So hello to wherever you wherever are. Wherever you are. <laughs> and, and also the analytics shows us what you're wearing. Yep, we see you. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No kidding. Um, I started referring to these people who watch in their pajamas as pajama people a long time before the pandemic hit. And that resulted in people in the Ordinary Life class gifting me with a set of pajamas that mm -hmm. have printed on them, I am a pajama person. Right. We really should have been wearing pajamas all year. Maybe we should wear those one and Sunday. We missed that boat, didn't we? We could do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you go to St. Paul's website on the landing page, just go to the bottom where it says quick links. And the first quick link on the left will be the reopening protocol that is uh, going to be put in place by St. Paul's. And... Ordinary Life will be following that. We will have our own registration portal and we'll make that known uh, soon. So what else? We have a podcast. Yeah. So, you know, we podcast every week on, it comes down on Thursdays. We have fun with it. If you're listening, we'd love to know whether you have fun with it, <laughs> but it's, um, it's on Apple Music, Spotify, and on our website. You can listen to Dylan Holly and sometimes a guest. Uh, so this past week, I sent a link to a Diana Butler Bass mm -hmm. blog. Yeah, blog. Blog. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to be here in November for the second full weekend in November, uh, and she'll be on a book tour. Uh, her new book is called Freeing Jesus. I've read like the first chapter, mm -hmm. getting ready for that. And I, I sent that to the steering committee asking if they had any hopes, fears, desires, wishes, whatever, for how things will be when we reopen, that they communicate that to me. And I've got an underwhelming number of responses. Underwhelming <laughs> means it's all in, in your hands, Bill. All in my hands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I hope that by the end of our time here today, you are disturbed by joy. If you would like to know how to give us money. Oh, or Shipley's Donuts napkins. Um, then you can go onto the website and click on any of the donate buttons. And it takes you to a page on the, on the St. Paul's website where you just need to put ordinary life in the memo. And just to reiterate, your generous contributions go toward um, helping to fund some of the most 
needful places in Houston right now, this crisis of pandemic, uh, racial reckoning has put many people out of work, out of the ability to pay rent. So we're contributing to places that are really taking care of immediate needs. And thank you to your generosity. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey or where you are in the world, you are welcome here today. Um, as you know, Holly and I have been using, um, almost from the beginning, both the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of Jesus to give us some guidance, some challenge, some comfort during this time of pandemic. And most recently, we have been going through the three chapters in Matthew that are referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And contained in those chapters is the prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And um, we've been doing a deep dive into that prayer. And um, likely, the Sermon on the Mount contains some of the most familiar teachings of Jesus. And certainly the Lord's Prayer is by uh, Christians who involve themselves in any kind of liturgical practice or any practice like praying the rosary. They, you know the Lord's Prayer inside and out. So today we come to the end of the prayer. Now we're going to do, um, the, what we're talking about today is the last line, authentic line, in what the scholars say the early Jesus community created for the prayer next Sunday. We'll be doing the line that was added to the end of the prayer and beginning with a quote by Teilhard de Chardin, whom <laughs> you are mentioning today. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of like Baldwin, kind of always in the back of my brain. So all of that being said, what I would like to begin with today is a piece about how what we know as the Lord's Prayer came into existence. This is my contribution today to religious literacy because I believe that the more clarity we can gain about the teachings of Jesus and about his immediate followers, the better we're able to see how these teachings are useful in our own spiritual practice as we seek to grow in those five qualities that I mention all the time, peace, hope, joy, patience, and humility. So uh, the line in the prayer that we are up to today is the one that most people know as lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I want to say up front that this is the most mistranslated and the most misunderstood line in the entire prayer. And it opens us up today, both of us, to talk about what in theology is known <clears throat> as theodicy. But we'll get to that in, in a minute. I want you to know that this line, as it appears, <clears throat> is not something Jesus would ever have said. It's not part of the Jesus database of his thinking. Jesus never taught about an interventionist God who has the potentiality to lead people into evil. But both of us will talk about that later. Perhaps the best way to translate this line is um, the way that Eugene Peterson translates it. May we not experience test after test, or as Peterson says, keep us safe from ourselves and from the devil. So here's some of the varieties of way that the, the line is translated. This is the one that you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May we not experience test after test. Or as Neil Douglas Klotz puts it, do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. So how did this line come to be? And I think of equal importance, how is this teaching applicable to our own spiritual growth and living? So Jesus had a ministry of healing and teaching. His healing, I think, is what attracted people to him. He freed people from bondages of all sorts of things, from blindness, from mishearing. All those are metaphors. I hope you understand that. And then he deputized some of his followers to go and carry out his ministry. <clears throat> he knew what he was doing. 
And once he was on the path that he had chosen, he saw its inevitable end. He knew death was inevitable. And after his execution and the experiences of resurrection, his disciples stayed together in community. These people were mostly Jewish, and a significant portion of them were women. <clears throat> Wayne Herbert sent me this cartoon. I'll read it. You can cough. So ladies, thanks for being the first to witness and report the resurrection. We'll take it from here. That's about right. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. about right. The women played a significant role in the creation of the Jesus movement, both while he was alive and, and after. And I have read several different explanations for how women got marginalized out of the story. Mm -hmm. um, one is that the men returned to um, the synagogue practice. Mm -hmm. The early 10, maybe 30 years of the Christian movement, scholars refer to as the synagogue movement. So the disciples went back into the synagogue where women were not welcome. And women know something about being left out, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So. And then another scholar says that there was a war that occurred in the early 60s. And as we know, the casualties of war are mostly women and children. Mm -hmm. And that could have affected the movement uh, as well. So <clears throat> these disciples went back into their religious roots of Judaism, trying to make sense out of their experience with Jesus. These are highly patriarchal structures, uh, and they used their Jewish teachings to create stories about Jesus. That's why I, so much, particularly of Matthew and Luke, and then to some lesser extent Mark and John, have so many quotes from the Jewish scriptures, from the Hebrew Bible, uh, that they used to construct the life of Jesus. The sayings from the cross, for example, almost all come from the Hebrew scriptures. And at some point in the first 30 years after the death of Jesus, people began to write down sayings that he had said that were memorable to them. Um, there was no narrative at this time. Now, since the Western mind is both analytic and literal, uh, the Western church has not taken these teachings as parables about Jesus, but rather as things Jesus literally said. One of the most helpful lines that I got in seminary, and you've probably heard me say this before, is that Jesus taught in parables, and then his followers taught in parables about Jesus. This is just so helpful. Mm -hmm. So later on, people would take their experiences that they'd had with Jesus, they'd pass them on to others in the oral tradition, and they began to build stories. Um, if you read Matthew and Luke, you will see that they have maybe two-thirds of their content in common, but Matthew and Luke didn't know each other. So how did that happen? And the scholars hypothesized that there was another document, which we no longer have, which is referred to as the Q document, Q coming from the first letter of the German word meaning source. And, and they, they use that and also uh, part of Mark. Uh, we know that. There was another document um, that was um, made up of sayings of Jesus. And uh, my conclusion after several years of work on it, this document is called the Gospel of Thomas, is that the sayings that are common with Thomas, with uh, Luke, Matthew, and Mark in probably that order, the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas actually predate what you have in the canonical Gospels. Uh, I wish that the Gospel of Thomas had made it into the Christian text. At any rate, this early community of followers took some of what they remembered as the teachings of Jesus and they constructed what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. Now, why did they do this? Well, for one thing, Jesus taught by praying in public. That was a teaching mode of his. This is a very Jewish thing to do. Communal prayer was both liturgically important to the Jews 
if you've ever seen any photographs or even movies of men and now women at the praying wall in Jerusalem, you will see them rocking back and forth, body prayer that is called, very important in, in that uh, Eastern tradition. Um, for another reason, the prayer that they created kept Jesus' memory alive for them. They, these were things that they remembered him saying, and so if they said them together communally on a regular basis, um, that would help them keep his memory alive. And perhaps the most important thing is that it strengthened their identity and kept them together under fire. Now, why would they need that? Why is that important? Well, because by continuing his teachings and practices, they were going to be subject to the same treatment he got, which is persecution, and in many cases, death. And just to be clear, they were not persecuted because they believed in things like the virgin birth or the resurrection. Those beliefs were a dime a dozen in the time of Jesus. Many of the Greek gods had miraculous births and, and, and had uh, re miraculous resurrections. Those things were common. They were persecuted for the same reason Jesus was for strictly political reasons, for not supporting the empire. So it would be natural for them to pray, given their worldview, that they might be delivered from these times of testing and persecution. Mm. And that's what this line in the prayer originally means. So interesting. Reading the text before we come and then listening to it is two different experiences for me as you're talking and as I'm listening to you go through it. New ideas crop up. I'm like, gosh, I wish I had written about that. <laughs> um, but there's so many similarities between early philosophers and the early um, Jesus movement. So Socrates was considered one of the great minds of Western philosophy, one of the greatest minds that ever existed. And Socrates was also thought to be illiterate. Didn't read or write, but had such wisdom, right? Which goes to show you don't need to be able to read or write to be really, really intelligent. Um, and Plato, his student, began to write down some of the teachings from Socrates. So that's sort of the first recorded, um, the first written pieces of philosophy we have from the Western world. And Plato explored many of these same issues as I would say Jesus explored. And this, this, one of them is the idea of evil. Where does this come from? And how do we mediate between God and man, gods and men? And how do we mediate between love and evil? So I'm gonna take us a little bit on a philosophical tour of the question of evil how it got perverted, and in a sense, I want to think about how evil to many of us is conceived to belong in the realm of the supernatural rather than in the realm of the human or the realm of the universe as it is. Paul Tillich, who's not an ancient philosopher, but a more, ah, my batteries, okay, uh, modern <laughs> philosopher. I I've love never this seen picture. this photograph. <laughs> I know, I thought it was so great. Um, anyway, he was a philosopher, a theologian, and one of a great mind, I think, argued that the distinction between philosophy and theology is essentially one of definition or semantics. Philosophy is about the structure of being. How did things come to be? Theology is about the meaning of being. Why are we? What is our purpose? This is like the non-dual nature of form and function to me, mind and spirit. These two fields are both distinguishable and inseparable. <laughs> I've often thought that Jesus himself was a bit of a Platonist, in other words, influenced by Plato's thinking. Both were seekers of the way, if you will, pursuers of the ultimate mystery, which is love. Theists and atheists both agree on the existence of evil. So there are philosophers who are theists, philosophers who are atheists. There are, um, and theologians are almost always going to be, fall in the category of theists, but uh, philosophers are both, and they agree that evil exists by degrees. So there is sort of a natural, arbitrary, impersonal evil, like a hurricane or a flood or a fire. You have to sort of remove the intent from something like that. These things don't have intent to do evil, 
but they can feel evil. We make meaning of them. Then there's like a broken arm that you have the day before you pitch your World Series debut. That feels like a personal evil, <laughs> something that removed you from something you wanted to do. We call this accidental evil. And then there's human moral evil, things like racism, <clears throat> genocide, murder. The question is, what is the root of evil? Is it an impersonal god, a very active devil, or the nature of the third law of motion, which is every action has an equal and opposite reaction? So literature has taken on this issue of evil, good and evil, forever, I think. <laughs> and in The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, I'm guessing many of us have read it or are familiar with it just by proxy, so Ivan, one of the brothers, basically breaks up with God because he cannot accept that the same God who allows a child to die for no good reason has a spot for another not-so-great human being in heaven in eternity. He says, a bad God is not only unworthy of my worship, he's also not someone I want to spend eternity with. In some ways, this is like breaking up with nature because she produces devastating storms or breaking up with humanity because we harm one another. In other words, this is a bit of an impossible bargain. And the question so often for theists, theist philosophers, remains, why would a good God allow for even a minuscule drop of evil in the world? If evil is allowed to persist, then God must be more powerful than it is, ultimately not letting the universe collapse on itself. And the problem of evil is one of the most serious objections to the existence of God. People abandon their faith more often because of this question mm -hmm. than any other thing. So the presumptions about God become, God is not all good. So meaning, maybe God has a mean streak in him or her and allows evil to happen. God sees the hurricane approaching, but doesn't really care if it kills men, women, children, doesn't listen to the prayers that it turned the other way. But this clashes with mainstream beliefs about God as essentially good. Second um, theistic philo philosophical rationale could be, well, then God is not all powerful. God sees evil, but is helpless to stop it. She or he would love to stop that tsunami, but it can only really stand by and watch and let nature take its course. So God lacks the power to save the innocent. This too seems like a bit of a sad commentary on the God we have come to believe in, which is that God is all powerful. But why not stop this from hurting undeserving humans and animals? Again, these questions are faith challenging. And the third is God is not, must not be all knowing. These evils take God completely by surprise, just as they take humanity by surprise. So these negations of God, God is not, God is, God is not, God is. Faith erodes faith, and we wind up with Ivan. What in the heck do I want to believe in this God if he is not all that great or all that good? Theists were not happy with these conclusions, so the thought trend became that humans must be separate from God because of some innate or external force of evil. Thus, we need this kind of mediator, either substitutionary atonement, we talked about that, it, to get back to God, or it, Plato talked about eros, or love, being the mediator between gods and men. So we needed something to sort of complete our journey. There's got to be, in my mind, a third way, a way to pursue an understanding of God or a sacred mystery, a way to see ourselves as agents of evolution and choice, a way to understand evil without needing to externalize it, so this above kind of circular debate, God is not all good, but that negates what we think about God, misses a key point that neither evil nor God are entities, but manifestations of being evolved in part by our choices about becoming. We play a part in evolving the universe. We play a part in evolving God. God does not so much permit evil or good, but is a kind of container for the creative state of being, which by nature includes freedom and therefore chaos. This is what it means to call God the ground of being, which was, I don't know if that originated with Paul Tillich, but Paul Tillich certainly used that phrase, mm -hmm. God is the ground of being. 
rather than a supernatural out there other than us being. This statement is both theological and philosophical. So this is where I see uh, the role of evolution, cosmo mm -hmm. evolutionary cosmology playing such a key part in redeeming our theology. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am not, I'm and, not and finished. And Plato and Jesus and Socrates did not yet have that context in the way that we do. And so this is, we're evolving, we're evolving our ideas. And, and, and of course, they lived in their inherited worldview. Yeah, we they live in, in our inherited mm -hmm. worldview. But that, that worldview is shifting, which is what um, I have referred to and others have referred to as the great turning again. Mm -hmm. the, 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 there's been a debate about this um, probably for the last 40 years in theology. And sadly, I've, I've said this many times, sadly, this debate is a long time making it to the, the curriculum of Christian education. Mm -hmm. But it's been going on. This conversation has been going on. Um, Brian Swim, um, mm -hmm. he goes back a ways, and mm -hmm. he's been writing this sort of stuff for a good while. Yeah. So I hope you've heard what Holly has said. The line, as it's usually said, lead us not in temptation, is not only what the original intent was, but it is just God-awful theology. It's just bad stuff. So um, I, hope, I hope some of you remember <clears throat> when I finished doing two or three years of research <clears throat> and study into the Gospel of Thomas, in the Gospel of Thomas, the image that is given in the first two sayings in the Gospel of Thomas, which really are the grounding for everything else that follows, is that Jesus pictures God as the God of creation that you have in the, the document in, in, in Genesis. God is a feminine, mm -hmm. creative, brooding, meaning care like a hen, mother hen mother hen <laughs> cares for her chickens mm -hmm. um, over creation nurturing it birthing it into existence what i was about to say is that i have not yet finished reading um Daramud Amuraku's most recent book, Doing Theology in an Evolutionary Manner, but this is exactly what he's saying. And it's why I think this book is, is so very important. There is not a God out there who occasionally takes a stick and stirs things up on the planet. And God is not like some celestial bellhop at our beckoning. Oh, God, send the earthquake somewhere else or the hurricane or get me a parking place or keep me from this illness. Hmm. We really do need to outgrow the notion of an external theistic deity. It is not helpful theology. And it doesn't lead to being, to, to empowering us to participate with the spirit in furthering the cause of evolution moving forward. Yeah. We need to change this. I heard John Dominic Crossan say something that has struck with me ever since I heard him saying, we are waiting for God to intervene. So much of fundamentalist Christianity is looking forward to the second coming and to the rapture and to that. And Crossan said, no, God is waiting for us and our collaboration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And I, I tend to be drawn to these thinkers who are philosophical, theological, and also scientific. And one of those thinkers that I love is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He is just that, a theologian, philosopher, and scientist. And he, too, writes a lot about how humans are co-creators in the evolutionary process. He writes that evil is like a growing pain of the unfinished universe and of the unfinished evolution of the human spirit. He also believes that everything is moving towards evolution of pure spirit, so that that's sort of the omega point in Teilhard's view, is that everything becomes pure spirit. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think we have to evolve Teilhard's thinking, because 
furthering that there's a divide between body and spirit is a kind of dualism. I wonder if it is really to integrate spirit into the body rather than continue to see it as something to become or something that's separate from us. So evil is, as part of evolution, falls in line with the following thinking. As long as we remain unfinished, non-integrated, and under the delusion of the separate self, evil will persist. Teilhard calls evolution an immense groping, an immense search, an immense attack whose progress can take place only at the expense of many failures, many wounds. We are part of the wound, and I wonder if we can't also be part of the healing. He goes on to say that the species who have suffered as a result of the immense groping that we are in are casualties, fallen on the field of honor. Hmm. That's a tough one for me. Yeah. You know, we're, we're collateral damage, so to speak. <clears throat> in this creative, destructive cycle of the universe. So if we are casualties, how are we also collaborators? Part of this is recognizing that every decision we make, individually and collectively, has consequences. Our decision to use gasoline and fossil fuels, while innovative at the time, created an untenable pollution and harm to the environment. Our decision to import Africans as slaves led to a social system designed on racism. Our decision to create renewable energy lends itself to repair. So you get what I'm saying. The fall and redemption story is kind of told through the Christ metaphor is actually available at all levels of creation. But I think we have to push that even further. Extend, and we talk about this a lot, like how, this cosmic Christ of sort of the end-all, be-all. We need to even move it beyond the cosmic Christ, beyond Christianity. Otherwise, we limit both. If we can't see that both Christianity and evolution are part of this, a grander design. So as co-creators, we must move our very small section of the universe deliberately and consciously, but towards what? This is the choice we make every day. We must understand in a real sense that we are both the cause of and an antidote to evil. So Teilhard certainly thought about God in terms of evolution in a dynamic world of movement, change, and complexity, but our ideas about evil remain abstract and even kind of dispassionate if we cannot understand them in the real world. It, it, and I think Teilhard kind of, he stayed up here. He stayed in that sort of realm of thought. Um, he was practical in many, many, many ways as well. But we have to be able to understand evil in, this, in the real world. And then ex ask ourselves, exactly what are we playing, praying for deliverance from? It is overwhelming to look at the persistence of evil throughout human history and feel audacious enough to hope that it can be different. But if we see the devil and Christ, not as out there, but as aspects of our inner nature, just as order and disorder are aspects of the universe's nature, then we begin to see our part in this play. We don't often hear the question about the nature of evil, for example, from evolutionary biologists or physicists, because there's an acceptance that pain and suffering and destruction are absolute requirements for life as we know it. So um, I just want to be clear. God does not make bad things happen to anyone. You know, I've been thinking, um, and I said this to Holly before we went on the air today, maybe we should just do a class where we don't have any notes in front uh -huh. of us. And I mean, I love it when we do that. Talk, about, once or talk twice. about things because I was thinking while I was listening to you is that, um, you know, where we get led astray is from some really bad habits of the mind. I mean, even, you know, when we use the word prayer, it, it connotes asking for something right. rather than cooperating with a process. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll say more about that before we're, we're done today. I just want to be clear 
that God does not make bad things happen. God never leads anyone into temptation. The good news that Jesus taught and lived is that God is light and love and that this light and love, although we don't always see it or experience this way, has overcome darkness and hate and that hate cannot put it out. A loving parent would never lead her or his children into darkness. Most of the problems and difficulties we experience in this world, both individually and corporately, come directly from us. We make wrong or ill-formed choices. We operate out of ignorance. Many people are emotionally immature, which is why I think one of the primary tasks of spiritual work is to grow, to grow up, to be mature. Um, others operate out of false beliefs. Others operate out of misleading philosophies. And when we talk about taking personal responsibility, we're not talking about making anybody feel bad or blaming somebody. It's about taking personal responsibility for the way that we create our lives and the way what we create has an impact on the lives of other people. Uh, sometimes we do that by how we respond to events that happen really quite randomly. God does not make bad things happen to anyone. God does, never, does not ever lead anyone into temptation. Mm. And I believe that if we work at putting our allegiance to the sacred, central, then we will be led in the direction of making wise and useful choices. And uh, we're going to talk again on a line that Teilhard de Chardin uh, is most famous for about the discovery of fire next, <laughs> next week. But we're also going to be talking about the other teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And this one is central. Putting the sacred central takes care of everything because what we're putting central is love. And love is what cures everything. My father was um, product of and constrained both consciously and unconsciously by his culture. We all are. And he shaped my life in some very good and very positive ways. Grounding me in the church that birthed and shaped me was one way. He bragged to everybody that he could that um, I was born on a Monday and when I was six days old, he walked me across the house where I was born and enrolled me in the cradle roll of the First Baptist Church of Portland, Tennessee when I was six days old. So I've been going to church a long time. And I grew up in a community of people who uh, loved me and cared for me and um, taught me. Uh, my father, as I said, took me to church early. My father was also a member of the Rotary Club. <laughs> now, I don't know what you know about the Rotary Club as an international service organization. Your mom is a member. I, I think she still is, but she I, was she for a She got long me time. to speak for her yeah, Rotary Club yeah. once a long time yeah. ago. Um, the, the Rotary Club is an international service organization that brings people together from the business community to provide humanitarian service and advance goodwill. And one of the radical things that they have done is contribute to the eradication of polio around the world. My father, my father died when he was 94. Mm. He never missed a Rotary Club meeting for 54 years. Mm. He was obsessive compulsive, <laughs> I would say. Or um, just really, really, really good at routine. <laughs> he, he achieved the highest award, a Paul Harris fellow that Rotary offers anyone. And I remember when I was a child, there set a plaque on his desk in our home. And it was also hanging on the wall of his business that contained the Rotary Club four-way ethical test. It is non-political, it is non-religious, and my dad made me memorize it when I was about six years old. Mm. This four-way Rotary test says, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concern? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? 
and is it beneficial to all concerned? So much depends on your definition of all. Well, it does. Mm -hmm. but it, And I'm sure that the definition of all in my father's generation didn't include all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we now know differently. Yeah, we are evolving. We are I evolving. <laughs> Is this not just another way of saying treat others like you want to be treated? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the linchpin of the first axial age. This is the turning point of the first axial age. When we pray that we might not be diverted from our true purpose, from our true identity, then we are praying like Jesus prayed. It's when we forget who we are and how we are to love that we cause ourselves and each other and the planet so much pain and trouble. Mm. This is a good prayer. Let us not be deluded by the surface things in life. Neither let us become inward and self-absorbed that we cannot simply act humanely, act simply and humanely at the same time. Mm. It's a good prayer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about what are our options kind of with this line. And again, I've really enjoyed breaking this down line by line. It's not a practice I've ever done, kind of prayed the same line for a week, you know, which is essentially what we're doing is praying over these words, meditating over these words for, this, for each week. And how can we go deep with it without becoming too binary, too, too limiting of our views about God and Jesus and ourselves as either good or evil. I wonder if we can't come to see ourselves as transformers. And when I think of the word transformation, I don't think of like coming from one state to another, though that is part of it. It's also about integrating states of being into one whole. So the bird always contains the egg. The egg always contains the bird song. So this sort of integration of being. It's so much easier to call evil the devil or the system, or the Nazis, or the KKK, just not us. Just as it is easier to long for redemption from somewhere outside of ourselves. Traditional philosophy typically looked at external reasons, as I said, about why evil exists. Why would God allow this? Why would God tempt us into doing evil in order to test our loyalty and our strength? That there is an opposing external force was the only logical answer. It must be Satan. And we must need an intermediary to get us back to God. So I said Plato called that in your intermediary eros. Christians call it Christ. To be our salvation. And that might be our only hope. So, so much of philosophy is anthropocentric, meaning it focuses only on the meaning of human existence in relation to the divine um, part of that is why we took dominion over nature, right? Is because we, anthropocentrism makes the human central as opposed to part of. Then Nietzsche, I know I just said that wrong, I'm sorry George Sroth, <laughs> comes along and he makes this radical move in philosophy. He basically says, no, 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 no. Take this conversation out of theology and make it about the human as part of nature, not outside of it. We need to sort of decenter ourselves in order to better understand ourselves. Nietzsche determined that good and evil are different expressions of the same nature. In other words, we humans are directly involved in the existence of evil. Thus, we are also intimately involved in transforming it. Here's the thing though, we can't do it by erasing it. We can't just erase evil off of the screen or out of our past. We have to face it. This is painful, but it's a kind of remembrance that is also a kind of love. Nietzsche said, whatever is done for love always occurs beyond good and evil. And I add, what is done out of love is always transformative. Another transformative act of love that is learning to love the self this is what you've been talking about, that when we operate from the true self, there is nothing evil about that. We so often externalize the evil that we find within, the darkness within. We think it's something that happens outside of us, but that, again, is not the case. 
contemporary sage, philosopher, social critic, writer, Tanahasi Coates, one of my favorites, referred to racism as the air we breathe and says, there is an insidious cost to this. A man invents a monster to justify his brutality only to find the monster is within. This is not unlike what Nietzsche wrote about, not unlike what I think Jesus was talking about, and James Baldwin too. So this should be the aim of religion, learning to love the self and others as God does. This process does not mean we will be delivered from suffering, but that we will increase our stamina in the face of evil and suffering when it arises. Nietzsche is, of course, famous for saying God is dead, and we sort of leave that to mean that Nietzsche must have been some kind of nihilist and, and complete atheist. But actually, this proclamation was a call to humans to become better versions of ourselves without fear-based motivation to appease a retributive God or the devil. This is the good struggle. And I love this image. And as you know, know you you knew it was coming. (laughs) As we become Jacob, wrestling with our own angel that is worthy of our time and deserving of our attention. To this end, Nietzsche writes, he who fights with monsters should be careful, lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. Ask anyone who's battled something like addiction. They know this fight. It's a common theme in literature um, and still so apparent that we're working out our ideas about good and evil. You know, consider Harry Potter, my favorite, Lord of the Rings, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Almost every sort of classic work of literature has something to do with this battle of light and dark or good and evil. All the superhero movies that my husband has gotten my whole family into, uh, my sons love them. We're supposed to root for the good guy, the hero, the one who comes to vanquish the darkness. But my favorite characters are always the more complex, the ones who kind of border on anti-hero types. These are the characters who have been through something. They have suffered in some way, and they've had to encounter the abyss within. Batman is that kind of character. Um, Bucky, this character that Josh mentioned last week, um, his fa- one of his favorite shows going on right now is The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And Bucky is a character known as the Winter Soldier. He's this kind of hero. He was used as a mercenary by this evil organization called Hydra. It's sort of supposed to relate to the Nazis. And his mind and body were literally frozen for periods of time. And then he would be awakened and used to kill uh, at, at, the, at, the, at Hydra's bidding. And at t- w- sometime along the story of this frozen, come alive to kill people, frozen, come alive to kill people, he is found by his best friend, who happens to also be Captain America. <laughs> He's, in a sense, delivered from evil by his best friend, by someone who can show him, albeit with great struggle and a lot of resistance, who he truly is someone who could hold the mirror up to Bucky and say, I know you. So as he wakes up, and we see Bucky kind of waking up to his true self over the course of the narrative, he has to face all these terrible things that he did as the winter soldier. In some ways, it would have been so much easier to remain frozen and let this evil organization sort of dictate his behaviors. And as we all know, when we become unfrozen, when we learn to see something, it is very hard to unsee. We try, when we ignore what we see, we go back to temptation. We go back to willful willful ignorance, can't get that out, overwork, disconnection. We bury ourselves in something that will numb us to the suffering we've experienced or the suffering we've caused. I want to say, and this may be far too simplistic, that temptation and the evil that come from it are consequences of remaining cut off from our true selves. And as I said before, when we are existing out of our true selves, it can't be evil. So Bucky has to create this list of atonements that he must make and sets out to find the family members of those he was trained to kill. And he goes one by one by one and sits with these families. Some forgive him and some don't but this is what he has to do to make himself whole again. 
Each of these people he meets, witnessing the pain in their faces and in their experience, is the path back to his humanity. Every day he begins again, acknowledging the darkness and following the light. It's a choice he makes, and slowly the monster within subsides. Of course, this is a fictional movie, <laughs> but it's a no less true example. A real-life example is, let's say, how the church has handled human sexuality, specifically homosexuality. The denial of it, calling it evil, has done terrible damage, tremendous damage, um, to two young people that I know and love quite well who've been on this journey of self-discovery, and that journey has brought some deep pain. Part of the inquiry is around sexuality. Who am I and how do I want to express myself here? They were each brought up to believe that homosexuality was a sin, that it's not right with God and definitely against the teachings of Jesus. The struggle before them is, do I hold on to what I've been taught and not cause a fracture in my family or my faith, or do I follow this inquiry toward the self? If the choice is to protect the family or faith, Honestly, an intergenerational act of harm is done. And that, that act of harm may lose the person to the true self, but it will bubble back up in future generations. It will be left for someone else to deal with. Having been taught that homosexuality is a temptation, these young people are praying for deliverance from evil. The true evil, though, is that our church has taught us that something about our very nature is bad or wrong, that we should deny it. People are literally dying because of this belief. Since the beginning of 2020, over 70 trans and non-gender conforming people, mostly black and Latinx, have been murdered. <clears throat> and Texas leads the nation in murders of trans women of color. Currently, the life expectancy of trans women is 35 years. This is not because there is something wrong with them. And what pain, I think, what absolute pain, the mistranslation and misuse of this line in the Lord's Prayer has caused. So I think as a community, as a church community, as a uh, seeking community, we face a kind of reckoning about who we want to be. I believe we have a choice every day to be heroes or villains for ourselves or others. I believe that Ideally, a community is supposed to serve the purpose of loving individuals into the full expression of themselves. This is deliverance from evil. This is deliverance toward love. Our job is literally to hold this safety net so that community becomes a soft place to land, not a place that instigates more shame and denial. I believe we are called to respond to the world, and I the world demands a response to, from us as collaborators in evolution. And that place that we respond from needs to be authentic but humble, vulnerable but courageous, loving but fierce. And when we remake the world like this, we transform evil into love. I heard Richard Rohr say once that the church has been more concerned with what people do in bed mm -hmm. than that they have a bed to sleep that's, in. That's a really good point. Yeah. I don't understand. <clears throat> I have some colleagues, I have one in particular who says that the emphasis now that's being given to the transgendered issue is because people on the right who did oppose homosexuality realized that they lost that battle. Yeah. And so this is the next one. It's just like, what would happen if we didn't other anyone? What? What would happen? What would we lose? A lot of killing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a sad thing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it really is. <clears throat> Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Not a word. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's splitting the church. Mm -hmm. It's splitting it's, the Methodist church and right And splitting now. families. Yeah, and families. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know about you, but I think about being here a lot. And the other night, after we had talked, 
and I had gotten in bed, I had this realization that um, ever since we have been offering these teachings on the Lord's Prayer, I've been referring to the work of Neil Douglas Klotz. Now, I assumed, because I introduced him here in, in Ordinary Life over 10 years ago, that maybe everybody knew about him, but that's not the case. This is Neil's picture um, taken at um, Stonehenge, <laughs> which is really problematic at daylight savings times. They've got to move all these stones. Back. <laughs> Goodness. Dr. Neil Douglas Klotz, Ph.D., is a world-renowned scholar in religious studies, spirituality, and psychology. He actually lives in Scotland, and he's co-author of well over a dozen books. He even wrote one with Benedictine nun Joan Chittister, who many of you know. Uh, Neil Douglas Klotz is a Sufi, and... um, He's written delightful works of Sufi stories and teachings. And I first discovered him through this book, Prayers of the Cosmos. You can see how worn it is. <laughs> I've had it for a long time and have mm. read it a, a numerous times. Matthew Fox wrote the introduction to this work. If you go on the Internet and look up Neil Douglas Klotz, and maybe you can go to YouTube and look him up, you can hear him do the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. He is an Aramaic mm. scholar. Mm. And um, it's such a beautiful language to hear um, and, and hear him give this rendition of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, not Greek. And Greek is a, a language that does allow for precision and division. And Aramaic is uh, very much like the Hebrew language and it doesn't have a real extensive vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one word can stand in for several things. Mm-hmm. And the word for prayer in uh, Aramaic is very similar, if not identical, to the word that we would use for meditation. Um, it doesn't connote asking anything. It, it rather connotes a being open to the, the sacred. So when Jesus was praying, what he was doing was ex- was expressing openness uh, to this. I, I really encourage you to look him up. He's he's got really a very nice presentation uh, to what he has to say. Um, ever since I first discovered him, I have read or said this prayer every day as part of my spiritual practice. The whole thing since we're about done with it, is, O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of my being and carve out a space within me where your presence can abide. Fill me with your creativity so that I may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of my actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. Endow me with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind me as I release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let me be seduced by that which would divert me from my true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and fruitful vision, the birth power and fulfillment as all is gathered and made whole once again. I love this prayer. And I think it's so um, so refreshingly different than the way that we are prone to pray the Lord's Prayer. So the line that we're focusing on today is don't, do not let me be seduced by that which would divert me from my true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. Now, Jesus taught, and we will get to this before we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, um, about the wise and foolish builder, about the straight and narrow path. Um, Jesus taught that there was a way to walk. As a matter of fact, the early followers of Jesus were not called Christians. They were called followers of the way. Mm-hmm. And our, ours is a culture where delusion and distraction abound. Uh, One of my professors in graduate school called it the sin of superficiality. 
Now, if you are wondering what might be the practical application of this, I personally believe that just having the religious literacy information that we've provided today is practical. I think it's helpful to know that for Jesus, praying did not mean directing words to a God off out there somewhere. But as I said, the, the word in Aramaic for prayer is very similar to the word meditation. Or it is similar to what Christians now practice as centering prayer. Um, just being open to the creative, loving spirit. I think being educated about the origin and meaning of teachings in our tradition is most practical because it keeps people from being led astray by some of the nonsense that parades under the banner of Christianity. Like Holly talked about today, the church's woefully misbegotten teachings about sexuality. We need to have a conversation in the, in the church about human sexuality, but the one that's being had is not a helpful one. Mm. You know that crosses and Christian flags were carried into the Capitol building on January the 6th. Not something Jesus had in mind at all. So the revival of interest in atheism that you see going on today in the writings of people like um, uh, Sam Harris, Christopher Dawkins, Hutchins, um, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, these are, these are a direct result of what these scholars see as the gone wrongness of so much of organized religion, religion that has drifted from its roots. And though I think this is true for all fundamental movements, I direct my remarks at Christians, Christian fundamentalism, because that's the institute from within which I teach. But one gauge of the distance some have strayed from the way Jesus taught is the extent to which belief in the Bible and certain key doctrines have become. And I just want to say, though I've said it before, this emphasis is extremely new in the Christian movement. The Bible is a witness to faith. The Bible is not an object of faith. Doctrines are statements of personal religious experience and not litmus tests to determine who's in and who's out. We're called in our spiritual work to remember. Remember what Holly said about how that word means putting back together, to remember who we are and what we are called to do. The guiding myth of Western culture is the myth of Adam and Eve which says that there was once a pristine time of perfection, but we humans screwed it up. And we've worked to get this resolved ever since. Evolutionary cosmology does not teach this. But we've lived with the mistaken identity of original sin and the need to be saved for so long that it seems woven into our DNA. So we have to prove ourselves over and over and be sure to come out on top as winners because that proves we're okay, mm. at least temporarily. This is not a myth that Jesus embraced. Evolutionary cosmology does not support it either. Now we have a number of ways that we can fall off the path in our culture. One is that we get caught up in um, competition and comparison Rather than just enjoying being here now, we constantly compare ourselves with some ideal or some other. We also do it by holding back and playing safe, not taking risk. What if we did invite everybody to the table? And then we'd have to be really careful about who's doing the inviting. Yeah. And of course, we keep busy. We are a culture of being busy. And most people are taught to be their worst critics rather than offering themselves love and compassion, the love and compassion we are to love others with. What I've come to believe is that I can love you only to the degree that I love myself. Mm -hmm. And I can allow you to love me only to the degree that I love myself. It's not selfish. It is in our enlightened best interest to learn how to love the true self and to know who we are. 
Uh, I think the worst thing that we do in our culture is focus on other people's faults and try to correct them. That's one of the things you see going on in the transgender movement right now and the homosexual phobia movement that's going on. People are focusing out there instead of here. Living life as people who are aware that we are created in the image of God and not out of deficiency of believing that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. That is the path we are called to walk. Um, it's, our, it's our custom on Sunday afternoons to go to the Whole Food in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I love to go to Whole Food. The nicest people in the world shop at Whole Food until they get in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that video? No. The Whole Foods, I'll, I'll send it to you. I have not. And so it, it shows that. It's a, it's a mockery of the Whole Foods parking lot. I, I've got to see it's it. It's really funny. I've got to see mm -hmm. it. So um, I'm checking out at Whole Foods and behind the counter checking me out is this really attractive woman and she's uh, very shapely and she has on a very low cut top and I'm a guy and I stare. <laughs> and what makes it even more problematic is that she has, as many people at Whole Food do, she has tattoos on her arms and she has a tattoo on her chest. Mm -hmm. And I stand there like a deer caught in the headlights just staring at this because what she has tattooed onto her breast, onto her chest, is the nativity scene. Except it's not quite like the one I'm showing you, the nativity scene that she had. The star is up here and it's radiating down. Huh. Toward her heart? And you think, I mean, you can't see where it's going, but you think it's, there is a manger scene down mm -hmm. here. And then in script across her chest, it says, child of God. Mm. And I think that my staring became so uh, apparent that I began to get really embarrassed by it. And I just said to her, forgive me for staring, but that is um, the most unusual tattoo I've ever seen. And she didn't smile and she didn't rebuke me, but she just said back very frankly, Mr. If you're going to have a tattoo put there, you better be really careful about what it says. Yeah. I wish we could see those words tattooed on everybody. Divine child of God. That's what you are. That's what I am. It's what Holly is. It's what everybody is. And if we could keep ourselves from being distracted from this notion, then we would be able to fulfill the potentialities of the present moment. And that is what praying this prayer means. Jesus taught that if we are to be known as his followers, we must learn to see these words written on everyone. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you back here next Sunday.